This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, Wait, you're listening? Okay. All right. You're listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. Shorts! <laughs> From WNYC. And NPR. Hey, I'm Jan Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. The podcast. And today on the podcast, something a little different. Um, we got to it because our producer, Pat. Do you want to get in here? Hey. This is Pat Walters. Yes. So maybe you should set this up since you put this in front of us. Yeah. This one comes from a writer named Tom. Tom Juneau, writer at large with Esquire magazine. Who I've wanted to get on the show for a really long time. It's about a pretty recent police bust that happened a few months back that Tom's been covering. Maybe we should just start with, a, do we, should we just like follow the chronology of your reporting? Sure. I mean, how did you get into this? Yeah. How did this start with you? Well, I, I, I got into it... Um, came out, you know, in the uh, the local newspaper. It was a, you know, front page story uh, that came out on November 2nd. Where is local for you, just so we know? I live in Marietta, Georgia, and okay. local for me is the Atlanta, Georgia area. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution ran a front page story with an illustration of these guys by the sketch artist that showed these guys, um, you know, being arraigned for guys in their orange jumpsuits. And the headline was interesting. It said... Um, they don't fit the profile. It wasn't for arrested subhead, they don't fit the profile. The headline was, they don't fit the profile. To explain, the article described four guys who had been caught on tape planning to buy explosives. Are you, got what are you, what are you looking for C4? I can get we, it. We, we are. Explosives they were going to use to blow up a federal building in Atlanta, <laughs> killing presumably hundreds of government employees. IRS, ATF, FBI, and the cops. They'd even looked into making this chemical called ricin, which is one of the deadliest poisons known to man. Arsenic takes 100 granules to kill someone. Ricin takes one to two granules. Yeah, ahead of a pin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On tape, they talk about taking this poison and dispersing it in public places up and down the East Coast. Newark, New Jersey... Jacksonville, Florida, um, Highway 95 in North Carolina and South Carolina. Which theoretically could have killed hundreds more people. They were motivated by an overarching desire to incite civil war, in which case, um, you know, the right side would, would battle and win and constitutional government would be restored in the United States. Now, what made them not fit the profile was, well, you could see it right there on the front page in the court sketch. Their white hair, their white beards. These were not your usual teenage terrorists. These guys, at least some of them, were in their 70s. They were retirees. I mean, the thing that interested me about it in the beginning was the thing that interested a lot of people, which is the fact that, 
you know, guys like this who you see sort of chewing the fat at the local Waffle House, Shoney's, McDonald's, you know, the, the coffee clatch of retirees. And, you know, you always pass these guys and, you, you know, you see them every day and you kind of, well, what are these guys talking about? In this case, they were talking about, you know, killing people in, in mass numbers. We know what we want to do. We know how to do it. What we need to do is prepared to do it. Be quick. So a story like this is not our usual thing, but what got us interested in talking to Tom about it is that when you hear these tapes... Who do we want to shoot? Lots of people. You're not quite sure how to feel. When do we want to shoot them? Yesterday. <laughs> That's right. Like, should I laugh? Like, oh, these are just some old dudes getting a little heated. Or... Hit run, though. Should I be really afraid? And it made us wonder, like, how do you know when someone's really a threat... Or when they're just flapping their gums, right? And that is the that is the you know the fault line that the that the story um, tries to explore. I'm curious to meet as much as you've met the uh, the four guys in question. I mean, what are they like? I've not met any of them. They are in jail. You can't get to them. But based on what you learn, what can you tell us? Well, I mean, I went I went the the most interesting of them to me was Fred Thomas. All right. So, who's willing to take a life? He's the guy you hear talking the most on the tapes. Who's willing to take a life? Fred Thomas was a career Navy guy working outside of Washington, D.C. Comes down here to be close to his son. This is late 2008. Right before... Prepared to take the oath, Senator? I am. Um, Obama. I, Barack Hussein Obama. ...is inaugurated as president. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. And for whatever reason, you know, he begins to see his dreams going sour. To the United States and he begins, you know, going on to these militia sites, saying that the country that he served has now abrogated his trust. Pretty soon, he's hosting militia meetings at his house, ranting about how it's time for them to do something. Are you committed to taking action? And in November 2011, Fred finds himself, along with some of the other guys, in a white truck in a Walmart parking lot, meeting with an arms dealer to buy a silencer for a fully automatic assault rifle and two fully built bombs made of C4 explosive. The bomb that they were accused of buying was actually sort of an IED. It was a, um, hmm. a cell phone triggered device. And that's a little bit scary, for sure. When you heard these tapes, were you alarmed? Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah. But I heard the tapes before I went to um, Fred Thomas's house. You know, when you, when you pull up to their house in the mountains of Georgia, they have a uh, sign in the driveway that says, Frank Sinatra fans only. You've had your first lesson. All others will be learning the blues. Learning the blues. And, you know, when, when, I, when I pulled up to that house and when I saw that sign and when I went into the, you know, Sinatra shrine room there, you know, I realized that they weren't... Typical militia What types. I expected, exactly. <laughs> He then learns that um, right at the height of his planning, right as Fred Thomas is saying things like, I could shoot ATF and IRS all day long. I could shoot ATF and IRS all day long. All the judges in the DOJ. As Fred was saying all this, he was in really poor health. I mean, he already has 
you know, a variant of emphysema that causes him to, you know, have to drag around an oxygen tank wherever he goes. He already can't get up the stairs. Hmm. The month before the first meeting takes place, he has half a lung removed. Really? Yeah. When you listened to this tape, what did you think about the potential of this fellow to do something real? I mean, he sounds sane on this thing. He sounds determined. Mm -hmm. The question is whether he or anyone could have done it. Because of age and health? Right. Well, wouldn't they have said that about James von Brun, the guy who shot up the Holocaust Museum? As we started thinking about this story, we ended up calling Dina Temple-Raston. I'm NPR's counterterrorism correspondent. And she kind of complicated the age argument for us because she said this guy, James von Brun, white supremacist. On June 10th, 2009. He walked right up to the Holocaust Museum. The guard opened the door. He shot him at point blank range and then started shooting up the museum. Oh my God. 89 years old. 89? 89. She called us back later to say actually he was 88, but still. If you saw this man, frail. Wow. Does that fit any sort of profile? It doesn't. So the fact that Fred Thomas was 73 and dragging around an oxygen tank doesn't mean anything. That's right. Yeah, in fact, I felt like when he was talking about how old and expendable... I'm old. I'm expendable. And how, I mean, he was going to die soon. I ain't got a lot of time left on this earth anyway. Five, eight, ten years is the most. Now he wanted to, like, leave something behind for his grandchildren and fix the country before he went out. I want this country to be good for my grandchildren. If it takes killing some people here now, I'm willing like suddenly he felt like he was scary because he was so old and mm -hmm. infirm. Mm -hmm. This is a guy with nothing to lose wanting to go out in a blaze of glory. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it felt right. it felt weirdly like the things that other real terrorists say. Right. There was a abandon to the way that he was talking about himself. But if you go past that little sentence, like which I noticed too, and then you go and learn anything else, then suddenly it gets dull again. That's the, that's the way it seems to me. Well, he's, he's far from, you know, he, I mean, a lot of these guys who do these things are rootless. He is far from rootless. Like, contrast him with the guy Dina told us about, von Brun, who had no family, no friends. The only connection he had to the world was his computer. And just before his shooting spree? He gave away his computer. Wow. So he was ready to die. Tom says that is not Fred's story. For all the violence of his rhetoric, he's shown for, you know, 73 years of life, no inclination towards violence, no inclination towards crime. He's been, a, from what we can see, a, a loyal husband, a devoted father. He's lived, in some ways, a blameless life. And that's, that is always why I thought that, you know, really, if someone had, you know, the sheriff had pulled up to his house and said, hey, listen... <laughs> We know what you're doing. We know what you're up to. Just, you know, get lost. If I, if I hear about this again, I'm going to come out and you're, in, you know, you're going to be in trouble. To me, it would have been over. So you think that if anyone had knocked on the door and said, we know what you're up to, just quit it. Just cut it out. Absolutely. You think they would have gone away? Absolutely. But how can you be so sure about that? I just think that there was an element of fantasy in this thing, which is scary but present in almost all of it. We ended up going back and forth on this for quite a while with Tom and Robert saying the government might be taking these guys too seriously. But he didn't. He didn't shit any. And then Pat and Jad saying, well, how can the government not take them seriously? Dina, can we get your take here? Sure. If you're faced with tapes of octogenarians talking about using ricin and spreading it on the highway to kill dozens, hundreds of people, however far-fetched it may seem, 
what do you do? I mean, is there a way that you can get to some sort of like clarity as to like, here's when I ignore them. And once they pass this line and here's the line right here, I can put my finger on it. Hmm. Then we act. Is there a line? I mean, what do you do if you're the FBI? You know, it's a gut thing in the end for law enforcement. It's a gut thing. And they have to decide whether or not somebody's a real threat or whether it's somebody they have to watch. But what they started doing is actually letting these so-called plots go a bit further. For example, there's a man named Samadhi. They found him in a chat room talking about loving al-Qaeda's ideas and wanting to do something against the United States. Sort of like our militia guys. Right. So basically, they introduced someone to Samadhi and said that he was an al-Qaeda sort of affiliate guy, could help him get the explosives he needed, would help him get a van in which he could put the explosives so he could drive it into the garage of this big skyscraper in Dallas. And um, so Samadhi did all this. He called the guy, they got the van, they filled it with explosives. Yes, everything that this guy suggested. But here's the important point. So they put the van in the basement of the building, and this FBI-affiliated person hands a phone to Samadhi and says, dial this number, and it'll blow up the bomb. And where are they standing at this point? Are they, are they anywhere near this building? They're in a car watching the—they're actually in a car apart from the building so they could watch the explosion. Oh. Anyway, they're apart from the building, and they're watching it. And he hands Samadhi the phone, and Samadhi dials the number he tells him to dial. And I don't know if this is a apocryphal part of the story or not, but it was actually the phone number for the local FBI office. And oh. he was arrested. Oh, so he, he gave Samadhi the, the phone and said, dial this number, the building will blow up right in front of our eyes. And Samadhi did it. Exactly. That's beautiful police work. That's, that's, see, that's, that's what I pay my police to do. If they can do that thing, that's brilliant. I would want to do that to all of them. Like, I would want to give that phone to everyone who's saying that they want to blow up a building. Yeah, because it resolves the central debate here, which is uh, prob- uh, oh, whether the possible is possible probable becomes the probable. probable yeah. Because if he's willing to dial the number, then you have your answer. But, but okay, here's the caveat. Because I think a lot about this, because there was a time a couple of years ago when we had um, something in the neighborhood of 14 of these kinds of cases in one year. The caveat, she says, is that if they dialed the cell phone, yeah, that seems to settle things, but they would never have dialed it had you not given it to them. And so one way of looking at this, and I, and I haven't fully resolved this for myself, is that if you get them stirred up, the fact that they're willing to dial the phone, you got them stirred up in the first place. On the other hand, the fact that they were willing to dial the phone means that they were willing to dial the phone. So let's get down to what we can do. What are we willing to do? And you have something of the same tension in this case, the Fred Thomas case, and that's really the heart of Tom's objection. Like the whole reason we have these secret tapes that we've been listening to is because the FBI recruited a confidential informant, a guy named Joe Sims, to infiltrate the meetings, and he wore a wire. And on the tape, you hear this guy, Joe Sims, suggest to Fred Thomas and the guys that they should buy explosives. Uh, again, we didn't know what the price was. You're saying it's a grand for a stick. Which apparently cost $1,000. <laughs> give you a stroke already. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It is yeah, what it I is. Know. We didn't know. We didn't know. It As you can hear, Fred is. says there's no way he can afford that. So Joe Sims 
chips in to help them buy it using government money. And then finally, he sets up that meeting with the arms dealer. That eventually led to these guys' arrest. I mean, if they weren't even at some sort of level going to do it without the addition of Joe Sims and an undercover FBI agent, it comes really, really close to prosecuting thought crimes. You yeah. know, there is, an, there is an apparatus at work here that is precisely the apparatus that these guys fear. Well, <laughs> they weren't prosecuted for what they said. They were prosecuted for what they did. This is Sally Yates. The United States Attorney in the Northern District of Georgia. When you put together a list of people and groups that you want to kill, when you conduct surveillance on both the ATF and IRS buildings here in Atlanta, when you make arrangements to buy bombs and silencers, that's not a thought crime. I think you ought to ask yourself, is that something you want law enforcement to walk away from? Are are we absolutely certain that they were going to act on this? And I'm not going to pretend that we were. But we were certain that that was not a risk that we were willing to take. We should probably hear this, the, the final. So the, in, at the end of the day, what happens? Well, at the end of the day, um, they meet in a parking lot in Cornelia, Georgia. Joe Sims is waiting there in a white Ford 150 truck with the undercover agent. Who, who is the undercover agent pretending to be? He's pretending to be an arms dealer. They are there to buy a silencer, and they are there to buy the explosive. So what happens? They get into the truck. Sims has a a wad of bills that is actually supplied by the government. He gives it back to the government, so to speak. He hands it to the undercover agent. Fred Thomas hands his money to the undercover agent. The undercover agent steps out and says, I got to make a cell phone call, makes the cell phone call. Um, I talked to the manager of the Captain D's that was being built in the parking lot there. They were there that day. And a Chevy Suburban and a big van comes ripping by these guys as they're going out to lunch. And the manager says to the owner, well, don't look now, but there's a SWAT team in that Chevy Suburban. That thing comes in and, you know, within seconds, these guys are out. They throw flash grenades in the bed of the white pickup truck where... Dan Roberts and Fred Thomas are sitting. Flash grenades. Flash grenades. You know, flash grenades are those things that, you know, they explode with a a blinding burst of light and also, you know, tremendous loud noise. The whole purpose of that thing is just shock and awe. They throw the flash grenades. They get these guys out. They go face down on the pavement. They're encircled by uh, a SWAT team um, in full armor, automatic weapons trained at their heads. And um, my sources from from the Captain D's said that one of the things that they noticed when they stood up was, you know, they, um, they both had, you know, stained their pants. Because hmm. they were so scared. Yeah. Do you feel any safer? No. Not sure. Kinda. Yes. Thanks to Tom Janot and to our own Pat Walters. Yeah. And thanks to you for listening. Yeah. I'm Jad Abumrah. I'm Robert Krulwich. See ya. I, I am Haru Zemsky, a Radio Lab listener from Portland, Oregon. 
and Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. End of message. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.